Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. My name is John Perrine, and today we are on the eighth episode in our study of Revelation, and we're going to try to draw it all together by looking at Revelation 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Perhaps for you, communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, has only ever been a regular church ritual, taken occasionally, perhaps with you even wondering what the big fuss of the swig of juice and bite of cracker is all about. In this episode, I want to connect communion to politics and explore how the table of Jesus really has been a table of revolution, a table that every time we celebrate it on earth announces the future banquet that is to come. We're getting close to the end of our study, but we are not done yet, so finally, After so much judgment, this episode is going to turn us to hope and the assurance we have in the wedding feast of the Lamb. So let's dive in. episode, because we're only going to be looking at one chapter, Revelation 19, I want to draw together some of the themes both of politics and revelation that we've been exploring so far in this study. So first, let's talk about politics. In America, we've just finished another tumultuous election cycle in a fraught contest between the left and the right. There are endlessly fascinating features to discuss, as I'm sure you've discussed with friends, family, willingly or unwillingly. Pretty much everyone has been talking about politics. Who voted for who? What does the demographic breakdown of the left versus the right mean for America's future? How will the deeply embedded tensions and suspicions and conspiracy theories affect our ongoing democratic process? What does the future for Joe Biden in office these next four years hold? What does the future for Donald Trump outside of office these next four years hold? What will happen in the January runoff in Georgia that could determine the fate of the Senate? I mean, These questions all seem to be bearing down upon us. They are, of course, fascinating, yet I'm not always sure that they are, in fact, the right questions for us to be asking. In this study of Revelation, I've been trying to explore the tension we have between the left and the right in American politics. As I've noted in previous episodes, both have a story that they're telling of America's future. Yet both also share the same story, the story of lowercase l liberalism. And as we covered last episode, liberalism is quite tricky to engage. On the one hand, it sounds quite good. Liberalism suggests that the best form of politics, the best way to structure society, is to offer maximum freedom for autonomous individuals, either prioritizing on the left, freedom of expression and support by the state, or prioritizing on the right, freedom from government interference for the flourishing of the market. Yet one has to wonder, can liberalism actually follow through on its promises? Yuval Noah Harari, an Israel historian trained at Oxford who would be considered a leading intellectual, recently released a book called 21 Questions for the 21st Century. In this book, he's going to argue that liberalism, whatever its early advances offered, is now being increasingly compromised by the threat of big data. The idea from Harari is that companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google are amassing so much information and are developing such sophisticated algorithms, both to understand us and to influence us, what we like, what we think, even who we'll vote for, that we're increasingly entering a time where liberal democracy doesn't really exist anymore. Think about it. 
If Facebook knows more about you than you do, and Facebook, based on their priority to sell ads, can influence what you think about presidential candidates or conspiracy theories regarding the coronavirus, then are you, as the people, actually in charge of your democracy, or is Facebook? Which of course begs the even deeper question, were we, the people, ever really in charge of our democracy as liberalism told us in the first place? Let's back up a second. This conundrum that big data is increasingly compromising liberalism is the same concern recently expressed by the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. In it, it vividly portrays a family scene in which teenagers far from being autonomous and free are actually hooked on the drug of social media. In fact, the image of the documentary's choice was that of a zombie, somebody hanging on puppeteering strings controlled by the invisible algorithms of Twitter and Snapchat, algorithms we were repeatedly told the companies themselves don't always even understand. This is the great conundrum, the paradox of liberalism that we're increasingly being haunted by. Liberalism said we would be free, but instead all liberalism can really deliver us are the winners of their system, who by privilege and luck managed to get to the top of the market or the top of the state. And the rest of us, the losers in liberalism system, are either going to be dependent, depressed, addicted, or simply waiting for our next chance to escape on vacation or consume the latest gadget, the latest game, the latest movie, the latest show. Now, all of that sounds quite bleak, but as I've been preparing for this series and sitting in political reading the past few months, I want to suggest something that may or may not seem even more radical to you. I think as I've been pondering politics and Jesus long and hard, that the church has actually been far too distracted by the left-right divide in American politics. I don't say that because I think there is even some better middle way. I say that because I am concerned that in reality, there are far deeper and far more concerning structural dilemmas caused by what it means to find yourself a 21st century human living in a Western society. The left and right, of course, each have serious proposals that should be taken seriously, yet have we as the church truly pondered what it means that both parties function in a secular, humanist, liberal, capitalist society? Is it even possible in that kind of system, a capitalistic system, to have a political party offer a trajectory that is aligned with the politics of Jesus rather than serving the politics of Caesar, the politics and liberalism that so often become about the government or the market. The church, rather than prophetically asking this question, instead has remained reactionary, getting worked up when a celebrity or a politician says something, when a tweet goes viral, or when a new show is released on Netflix, rather than asking what of this cultural moment we find ourselves in, is actually aligned with the politics of Jesus. You might sense my concern, yet the problem, as I go after liberalism, is that there really is no viable alternative option to liberalism, to these controlling factors of the market and the state. In fact, you could argue the 20th century provided us with one alternative, the option of Marxism. Now, as I say the word Marxism, you either are going to have your eyes glaze over in boredom and confusion, or a shiver is going to run down your spine like I just said the name of the boogeyman. Everyone seems to know Marxism is hiding somewhere, 
looming as this threat that perhaps mysteriously is being imported from China into American ideology. Marxism, however, is about far more than what's taking place in China. In its time, Marxism was a very serious attempt to answer the problems faced by capitalism and to ask, is there a better way to structure our politics? So what is Marxism? Where does it come from? In some ways, 100 years ago, before World War I and World War II, there were far more creative political conversations taking place about what the best way to govern society would look like. In 1848, Karl Marx, along with Frederick Engels, would release one of the most influential political tracts in history, the Communist Manifesto. Marx's basic premise was that human history culminated in a struggle between two classes, the bourgeoisie, if I said that correctly, who were the capitalists, quite literally. The bourgeoisie were those who controlled capital, who owned the means of producing goods. These bourgeoisie were set against the proletariat, those who did not own capital and therefore had no choice but to sell their own labor as a means to survive. I find it helpful here to think in terms of a factory. Marx's problem is that one person, the capitalist, literally the one owning capital, is the one who owns the land the factory is built on. They probably own the factory itself and they likely own the intellectual property to whatever the factory is making. Whereas in this factory, 100 other of the proletariat, the men or women, who are laboring in the factory, because they have no capital, are forced to sell their labor in order to make enough money to survive, all the while having no chance, no future ever to own the capital with which they are serving. Some of the reason why Marxism has been so powerful a force is that Marx's primary critique was against the same concern I just mentioned. Marx believed capitalists did not, in actuality, care about the working class that supported their businesses. At the end of the day, Marx believed this was exploitation. Those with capital were more interested in profits than they were in people. And so, by nature, capitalists exploited their laborers. Let's say the factory makes 1,000 products a day. Instead of the 100 laborers each owning and making profits from 10 of the products split evenly across production, the capitalist owns all 1,000 in a capitalist society and takes likely 90% of the profits, using only the final 10% to offer wages to those who work for him. On a certain level, this intuitively seems unfair and even unwise. This is part of the power of Marx's proposal. Why, Marx asks, should laborers have no share in the products they produce? What is motivating to a workforce that will work all their lives and will never actually own a stake in anything they've made? Yet here is where Marxism becomes most incendiary. Marx suggested that the capitalists were so powerful, their exploitation so cruel, that the only possible way that such a system could be overturned would be for the working class to rise up in revolution, to seize the capital, the means of production for themselves, and to therefore distribute all of that capital equally across society. In theory, Marx suggested that the results of this revolution would be socialism, the shared co-ownership of the means of production, with the purpose no longer of profit, but the shared pursuit of fulfilling human needs and social betterment for all. If we're being honest, that of course sounds great. Who wouldn't like the idea of social betterment for all? a just and equitable society in which co-ownership allowed for the shared pursuit of fulfilling human needs. That's kind of like what Jesus seems to be talking about. Yet it's important to note the catch in Marx's thinking. 
Such a society is only possible by the means of revolution. Marx was unfortunately all too clear on this point. Blood would be shed in order for capitalist power to be dismantled. Thus, we found across the 20th century horrific, bloody uprisings from Russia to Latin America. If you read even snippets of the history, these things were brutal. But it gets worse. What Marx never quite picked up on was the dangerous possibility that human sinfulness and greed would corrupt the waters of the proletariat just as much as the capitalists they were replacing. This is the great crux of communism that would be its demise. It never could take into account the human sinfulness of those who would eventually replace anyone in power. And so in Russia, for example, under the guise of communism, the state seized all means of production and then chose who deserved what distribution of wealth and, of course, brutally suppressed and killed any who threatened the betterment of Russian society. The result, as a Wall Street Journal article reflected back in 2017 on the 100th anniversary of the communist uprising in St. Petersburg, was with its title, 100 Years of Communism and 100 Million Dead. Once you begin down the bloody trail of revolution and uprising, inevitably a party that seizes power can use whatever mechanisms it has available to it to maintain its power, and this will result in corruption, suppression, and violence. So what do we do if we're caught between liberalism, which seems to manipulate us with the market and with the state, and communism that insists on violent bloody uprising and replaces corruption and greed with more corruption and greed? Well, there of course have been various hybrids and experiments, which is of course what makes politics so messy. You could point to socialism, the softened version of Marxism that emphasizes gradual change and restraint of capitalism rather than revolution. This has seen varying degrees of success. China in its current form also represents a capitalist-communist hybrid, which has been undeniably successful on the one hand, globally, economically, yet on the other hand has failed miserably when it's come to the cost of its civil liberties, its civil rights, its freedom of religion, and the general propensity to disregard human dignity. It's also been noted that in America, interestingly, and I think this is an important point, far from being removed from Marxism or communism, both extreme groups on the alt-right and on the alt-left speak of a revolution that sounds eerily similar to Marx's ideology. If you listen closely, both extreme groups on the alt-right and the alt-left speak of something that looks like a minority group violently overthrowing what they perceive to be the manipulative and ruling class in order to establish their version of a just and equitable society, of course, as long as it's reformed in their own image. To be honest, I don't think Marxism is going away. It has far too powerful an appeal that resonates in the hearts of those who experience themselves to be oppressed. It is a powerful call to revolution. Yet as history has repeatedly demonstrated, Marxism always fails to deliver on its promised utopia on the other side of its bloody revolution, and often the result is far worse than what had been previously embraced. There's therefore good reason for Christians to be wary whenever Marxist ideology surfaces, Though, as I've already pointed out, I think we could do far better in also being concerned about the capitalistic ideology expressed in liberalism that we have as Christians typically uncritically embraced. Neither Marxism 
nor liberalism reflects the politics of Jesus. That may sound grating to you, but consider, both promise to fulfill some aspect of Christian desires, be it justice and equality for all, or freedom or liberty for all, yet neither is truly interested in the best interests of individuals and communities attempting to live out dedicated allegiance not to the market, not to the state, not to power and revolution, but to Jesus, which leads us back to the book of Revelation. Undeniably, if I were to try to summarize where we've been so far, Revelation is daunting, and it's a daunting political manifesto to keep up with. The reason we so often relegate Revelation either to the distant literal future, in which our main obsession is whether we as Christians will be in or out of the tribulation, as if Jesus somehow promises that none of us will go through any trials, but I digress, or to the non-literal and removed symbolic meanings of Revelation, as if God does not ever pour out wrath, as if plagues and pestilence and disease and totalitarian rulers never existed, as if Satan does not actively work unseen in the world in ways we can probably not even begin to imagine. These are both common tendencies because we try to avoid the challenge of revelation for our comfortable political preferences. However, instead, I think revelation challenges everyone and everything. I think, in fact, the only ones who are truly comforted by Revelation's visions are those who have already offered up their lives as martyrs. I mean, Revelation is only good news if you are suffering and are about to give up your life for the Lord. Consider the sweep of Revelation's journey. John writes of a vision of Jesus he's received as the Ancient of Days, the shocking and awe-inspiring figure of God as man in Jesus Christ who comes to address the seven churches. In the letters of the seven churches, we're confronted with our failures of compromise, of weakness, of apathy. Yet Jesus lovingly encourages us to endure and overcome the political pressures we're facing. John then proceeds to lay out a number of visions that switch back and forth between the throne room of heaven on which is seated the Lamb eternally slain and the outpouring of God's judgments on the perversity, on the sicknesses, on the injustices of the world. I'll be the first to admit. This is heavy reading. But like all of Scripture, Revelation is necessary reading. It challenges me, and it helps put history and our future in context. I so often live my political life focused on the thrones of earth. I so often find myself distracted with the very compromises, weaknesses, and apathy that those early churches shared with me. Yet at so many points in Revelation, I am moved. I am moved by the Lamb who offers himself in weakness, in blood, so that the saints could be washed and robed in white. I am moved by the song of redemption and salvation that the saints join the heavenly choruses in singing. This heavenly refrain that echoes an earlier vision of the Exodus in which God saves his people from slavery into a new vision of worship of himself. I am moved by the prayers of the saints that rise like fragrant and powerful incense before the throne, and I am moved by how God acts, that God will, in fact, establish his justice, that God will, in fact, not refrain from pouring out his own wrath, yet that God's judgment is always tempered in its completeness by its mercy, always seeking the repentance of those that God interacts with and longs to save. 
always advancing God's purposes on this earth. If I had any prayer for you throughout this study, it would be that in returning to the Word, you would be moved in the Spirit, much as John is caught up in these visions, and that even if they were just glimpses, that you would encounter God in this book, the true, holy, righteous, and good God, who even now reigns from the throne, even now rules over heaven and earth, even now vindicates his saints and steers history in his mercy and justice. I honestly have no idea how the prophecies of Revelation will play out in human history. I don't think I need to understand them. But I am assured that God does move the steady hand of his salvation now across the world as he draws all of his sheep, even those of us who have become lost and strayed, to himself. Even as God grieves over the many injustices of this world, even as he calls us to endure and to overcome to overcome those temptations, overcome our sins, overcome even death itself in Jesus Christ, the Lamb eternally slain who has already overcome for us. This leads me to Revelation 19. In the previous chapter, with the funeral dirge singing the song of prophetic lament over the ruins of Babylon, we were left heavy with the disappointment of the politics of Caesar. However, Revelation 19 is going to burst forth with this shout of joy about the coming politics of Jesus. This is what Revelation 19, 1-2 says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is the great salvation proclaimed of in the Psalms, the ultimate hallelujah. Praise to Yahweh that now at last his salvation has come because he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth. We've heard many snippets of the songs of the saints, Yet we're starting to sense this truly is the end. The next verse, verse 3, says this, Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That phrase, her smoke goes up forever and ever, was used earlier in Isaiah 34 to describe the completeness of desolation that will occur on Babylon when God's judgment is complete. You have to picture here, Babylon is the ultimate representation of humanity's pride to set itself against God, to build up in its own image, in its own name, a glory and a power all of its own. But Isaiah would go on to say this, From generation to generation, Babylon shall lie in waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. This truly is the end of Babylon. Babylon will not rise again once God's judgments are complete and his salvation has come. The project of Babylon, in which humanity makes a name for itself, has finally come to a close. This leads in the following verses, verses 4 to 5, another snippet of heavenly worship. This is what it says. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. In Revelation 18, we'd been shown the lament of kings, 
merchants, and sailors. But now the emphasis is on everyone. Small and great who serve God are crying out to the throne. This has been the relentless vision of God's throne. Everyone is involved. All tribes, all tongues, all nations, all peoples, from servants to slaves, from women to men, from the rich and powerful to the lowly and meek, all who serve God will be gathered in humble worship and joyous celebration as they receive the gifts of God's presence and rule established on earth as it is in heaven. You can almost tell John has been building up to something. Almost like there's this great reveal coming as the chorus is building around the throne and we finally find it. This is Revelation 19, 6-8. This is what John is going to say. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, if you were an ancient audience member who was familiar with the scriptures, this moment in John's vision might well have made you gasp or perhaps even burst into tears. Two powerful biblical images come crescendoing in glory here that were rooted all the way back in the promises of the prophets. And at first, long ago been foretold that when the day of the Lord would come and the Messiah appeared, a banquet would ensue. Banquets in the ancient world often followed the victorious return of a king. So perhaps it's not surprising to hear Isaiah say in Isaiah 25, 6-8, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I mean, for Isaiah, this moment is a massive moment of culmination. Banquets were always the signs of joyous festivity of music and dancing, often of either something new being inaugurated or something finalized being completed. Where the best food, the best wine are gathered together to celebrate all of the richness, all of the wonder, all of the work, and all of the beauty that has led up to this festive moment. I mean, what other image could capture such an important celebration other than a banquet? a feast, which, as Isaiah says, is pouring forth the best foods and the best wines. Yet, even more specifically, across the prophets, while Israel was sometimes referred to as God's firstborn son, other prophets reflect on Israel in light of her covenant with God as the bride of God. This goes all the way back to the union of one flesh between Adam and Eve established in the garden, a union that God hoped to have with all of his people and a union that was established by God at Sinai, yet a union that Israel was consistently unfaithful to in the ways in which she would break the covenant. Hosea, of course, is the prophet to go to here. Israel, as a spouse, has been unfaithful, 
Israel as an unfaithful spouse would need to be ransomed. Yet God imagines just such a moment. This is coming from Hosea 2, 16-20. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You can hear it, right? The swelling orchestration like a great symphony, two distinct themes that were begun in the first act of the play that are now swelling together in the finale, emerging with new beauty. Jesus in the Gospels signaled repeatedly that he had come as a bridegroom to ransom his bride. Just love that image. Jesus would sit on the night of his betrayal and at the feast of Passover would say that he had come to establish a new covenant at his table and offer a new sign, the bread of his body and the cup of his blood. I mean, it's all coming together, the ransoming, the feast, the celebration, and yet the cost. Yet now we're told that finally, finally, after so much persecution, after so much pressure, after so much suffering, After what the Bible often sees as so much cleansing, the bride has finally been made ready. In the Roman world, a bride would take all day to bathe herself in perfume, to prepare herself in her finest garments, to adorn herself with any family heirlooms and jewelry that were available, all so that she, in her stunning beauty, on her wedding day, would reflect brightness and purity. And in this moment, John is told that the marriage of the Lamb has finally come. And if you remember that final line coming in verse 8, we're told that this fine linen adorning the bride is in fact the righteous deeds of the saints. This is what it's all been about. This is why the overcoming, the enduring has been so important. We, as the bride, have been preparing ourselves for our bridegroom. It certainly feels sometimes like it's taken a long time. It certainly sometimes feels far more costly, far more expensive, far more excruciating than one would hope. Yet John wants us to know the vision of why we're doing it, the vision of what's coming, We have been preparing ourselves. We've been preparing the adornment with which we will be presented to Christ. I love the following verse. This is Revelation 19, verse 9. It says this, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, These are the true words of God. The marriage supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the union of God to humanity, of Christ to his bride, the church finally come one with her Redeemer. We're offered both the immense weight and the almost dramatic understatement, this assurance of blessedness. Blessed are those who are invited. This feast will be the overflow of all blessings. It will be the celebration of all celebrations. We're left here on earth with only glimmers in our imagination of what such a feast would look like. 
One thinks of Isaiah's note of rich food and the choicest of meats. When you think of the best meal you've ever had, one thinks of Jesus in Cana with the bridegroom proclaiming, most serve the best wine first, but you have saved the best wine for last. One pictures the greatest celebration of smiling friends surrounded by the enraptured joy of husband and wife, united at last in purity, brilliance, and devotion. And this, we are told, will be us. Will be us with Christ, the people of God, now forever established in the covenant of love, forever dancing in the joyous embrace of our triune God. It's hard not to get swept up into such a scene. It's hard not to find our present reality, with all its complexity and strife, more wearisome and mundane than these kinds of visions that Revelation offers us. Often Christians have looked eagerly forward to this great wedding feast of the Lamb and simply perhaps ignored the ongoing strifes of the present. Such witness was not to Christian political engagement, but to Christian political escapism. Yet surely the point of the wedding feast is about more than just giving us a wonderful image to escape to in our imaginations when the struggles of the present seem too much to bear. Is there some other reason we're told that this feast is coming? Is there some other invitation we're given in contemplating the wedding feast of the bride with the groom, the wedding feast of the lamb? There's this fascinating study done by Catholic theologian William Cavanaugh called Torture and Eucharist, Theology, Politics, and the Body of Christ. Now, I realize this is out of left field, but it's got fascinating parallels to precisely what we've been doing in trying to draw close the political world of the present political world with the politics of Caesar, and ask what the politics of Jesus, the politics of Revelation, have to teach us about how the church is called to be and act politically in the present. Kavanaugh was drawn to study the relationship of the Catholic Church to Chile's dictator-led military government between 1973 and 1990. In 1973, General Augusto Pinochet, the head of the Chilean military, was supported by the United States government to lead a coup against the people-elected Socialist Party. By the time the overthrow was complete, Pinochet was appointed president, though he had clearly only been done so as the established dictator. After his rise to power, Pinochet persecuted leftists, socialists, and political critics, executing over 3,000 people and interning 80,000, torturing tens of thousands. Under pressure from increased global scrutiny, Chile held an election in 1990, which finally forced Pinochet to step down as president, though he continued a position incredibly in the military. Kavanaugh, surprisingly, was there as an American scholar for 18 months at the end of Pinochet's reign and knew people who had been tortured. That's at least what Kavanaugh says. What Kavanaugh, however, is most distressed by in his book is why the Roman Catholic Church stood silently by and allowed the abductions and tortures without political resistance or protest by the church. I mean, isn't that fascinating? The Chilean Catholic Church witnessed these abductions and tortures politically taking place and said nothing. As Kavanaugh explores the issue, he believes that there was a deep-rooted breakdown in the church's ecclesiology and her understanding of the Eucharist. Kavanaugh argues intriguingly that in the Eucharist, the church believed that because the real body of Christ was present in the bread and cup, 
It meant that the church was only the spiritual body of Christ, and thus had no business interfering in the temporary political movements of the state. In effect, by locating the real body of Christ in the Eucharist rather than in the church, it spiritualized and depoliticized any role the church could take in protest against the state. In contrast, Kavanaugh believes that it's precisely in the liturgy of the Eucharist, in communion, that the church is taught political resistance to a state that would deem it acceptable to physically torture its members. The Eucharist identifies Jesus with those being tortured, not those doing the torturing, and strengthens the resolve of those who receive the Eucharist to resist a state torturing its people. Kavanaugh boldly believes this is the power of the liturgy in general, to shape people politically, and wonders if it was not the Lord's Supper, properly understood as mediating the real body of Christ to the real body of Christ, the church, that could not have strengthened the political resolve of resistance to the Roman Empire and anywhere else Christians were killed for their faith. In essence, Kavanaugh wonders if the Eucharist was the political formative hub of the early church that helped them to endure and overcome precisely in the call that John gives them in Revelation. Thus, for Kavanaugh, the Eucharist is meant to be political, not just spiritual. It's meant to be the table of resistance, even the table of revolution, if it's the means by which Christ assures us he identifies with our suffering, our tears, and our very blood, and he motivates us to resist those who would in effect extend the politics of Caesar wherever it is opposed to the politics of Jesus. Perhaps you can see where I'm going with this. At its best, the church has always connected this act of communion, the act of celebrating the Lord's Supper, as being offered to us as a foretaste of the coming wedding feasts of the Lamb. I think this is exhilarating. Every Sunday in my tradition, when we celebrate communion, we're getting a taste, a reminder, a sign of the coming feast that John describes in Revelation 19. It is not only a moment to dwell on our sins, though it certainly is that. It is not only a moment to be reminded of our forgiveness mediated through Christ crucified on the cross, though it is that too. But in its fullest form, communion is a reminder of the heavenly feast that is coming. It's an announcement of the table of revolution Christ will enact when Christ comes, the table that we are joined to even now as we one day will be joined to fully, when the lamb with the richest food and the richest wines shall overflow in abundance at the table of the Lord, when together we will feast in the house of Zion. Yet is it possible even more than merely hope that communion is itself a political act of allegiance? That however often we take the bread and cup, we actually are making a public proclamation a public declaration of our allegiance to Jesus as our King. That as we reflect at the table on Christ crucified and raised, we are actually committing ourselves to Jesus' rule through us. This kingdom of priests where we care for, through Christ, the vulnerable, the poor, the hurting, and the suffering. Those too who are oppressed, who bear the weight of injustice, who need a Savior just as much as we did. Is it possible that communion itself could fuel that kingdom priest mentality, could form not just our spiritual lives, but could form our political lives as well, could direct our week, could direct how we vote, could direct how we suffer and share, all because this table both solidifies what Christ the Lamb has done and proclaims to us what Christ the coming Lamb will do 
when he returns to establish the feast of God himself. I think the potential is endless here. I think communion is in fact a political table. This is our politics. Every time we break the bread and share the cup, we offer an embodied, concrete political action for the good of our community and our city just by our mere proclamation. We proclaim our allegiance to Jesus as King, even as at the table we are training our hearts and minds to imitate Him in love and self-sacrifice for the world. Think back to every issue we've raised so far, from concerns with capitalism and Marxism to the prayer protests and songs of lament we've sung about racism and abortion and every other social concern. Imagine how we could find spiritual power to fuel our resistance to these injustices by the nourishment of Jesus' table. Communion resists our driving consumption. It resists capitalism by offering us the simplicity of just bread, just wine, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Communion also resists our driving liberalism by reminding us that we are not autonomous selves, free to be whoever we want, but we are dependent community gathered together around Jesus' table. Communion resists our Marxism by reminding us that we cannot establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth by our own revolutions, but that Jesus himself established the greatest revolution of all through the self-sacrificial offering of himself in love. Is it possible that the table of Jesus really is this politically powerful? Could we be shaped in the present by the future wedding feast of the Lamb? Revelation 19 closes with another powerfully political vision, though once again this one will focus on judgment. This is now Revelation 19:11 to 16. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are reminded that for the joyous celebration to come, it will be established by the cost of blood. When I think of William Cavanaugh's study and the breakdown of the church in Chile to resist injustice, and the repeated breakdown of the church in all contexts to live out the politics of Jesus, I think John is offering us this scene intentionally. It reminds us that we alone, by our own power, cannot establish this wedding feast. Instead, part of the purpose of the wedding feast is to regularly look forward towards the groom who must come again. And John assures us, or perhaps warns us, that when the groom does appear, the one called faithful and true in righteousness will judge faithfully and truly. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We are left to hope and pray that we be counted among the endurance of the faithful, that blessed number of Christ's saints. For this is not a meek and mild Jesus, but the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The closing scene of Revelation 19 is once again bleak, yet I have to include it because it contrasts the joyful celebration of the wedding feast of the Lamb with a far more repulsive feast. This is what it says, verses 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Though the beast and the kings of the earth have once again gathered to make war against Jesus, sitting astride his horse with the army of his saints, the conquest is immediately dismissed. The beast and the false prophet will be captured. The two will be thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest are slain simply by the word that came from the mouth of him sitting on his horse. And we're grimly told the birds gorged with their flesh. This is not pleasant. It's not intended to be. As ever in Revelation, we're driven to pause and reflect. What meal am I celebrating in my politics? Am I serving the politics of Caesar that culminates only in the gruesome meal of the carrion birds that followed recklessly the beast and the false prophet, that drank deeply the wine of the harlot, that celebrated Babylon in all of its achievements only to see it burned into rubble? Or... Am I serving the politics of Jesus that proclaims allegiance only to the lamb that was slain, that follows the king sitting astride his horse with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that celebrates his coming banquet each time I remember his broken body and poured out blood and attempt to pick up my own cross and follow him as a kingdom priest that serves my neighbors? Yet I will not end this episode in despair, but in hope. The wedding feast of the Lamb is coming. It will be a celebration like none before it. This is the best part. There's nothing up to us that will establish this feast. Instead, we simply anticipate it. Each time we break the bread and share the cup of Jesus Christ, we remember that our salvation is secure. The one sitting astride the white horse, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, with fiery eyes, who is the word of God, is coming again. Yet he is coming in love to be united to his bride. And we, each day and week, as we live out this real, concrete, embodied act of love for the good of our communities and the good of our cities, we're preparing ourselves to be robed in that glorious wedding feast with those very righteous deeds. So if every week we ask the political question, How do we concretely and publicly live out the politics of Jesus? I think one of the primary paths forward is simply to celebrate communion, to really celebrate it. Maybe this takes place at your church already, or maybe for you, this is the meal you gather in your home for with friends, where you lift a glass and break bread as you declare allegiance in the midst of a broken world to a king who even now is preparing to come. Maybe that table is meant to be the source of the revolution, where you and all those gathered there love one another radically, share in what you have, give to those in need, proclaim good news to the blind, to the captive, to the sick, to the dying, extend fellowship to the lonely, the depressed, the weary, the brokenhearted. 
Maybe whether we find ourselves under the politics of capitalism or the politics of Marxism or any other politics, maybe the table was always there to remind us that this meal is only an imperfect taste of the one to come. Of course our politics are broken in the present. People are broken. They always will be broken. But we know the one who was broken so that you and I could be made whole. May you and I be washed by the Lamb's blood. May we be robed in righteousness as one bright and pure before our groom. And together, each time we gather, may we declare our allegiance that Jesus is Lord and proclaim his death, resurrection, and ascension until he comes again. I look forward to joining you one day in that glorious feast. Until then, this has been John Prine with The Burning Word. Grace and peace.